Chapter thirty two of The Wanderer or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter thirty two. This resolution, once made known, not an instant was allowed to retract, or even to deliberate. To let it reach Miss Arbe was to put it into execution. That lady appeared now in her chosen element. She suggested all that was to be attempted, she directed all that was to be done. A committee of ladies was formed, nominally for consultation, but, in fact, only for applause since whoever ventured to start the smallest objection to an idea of Miss Arbe's, was overpowered with conceited insinuations of the incompetency of her judgment for deciding upon such matters. Or, if any one, yet bolder, presumed to hint at some new arrangement, Miss Arbe looked either sick or angry, and declared that she could not possibly continue to offer her poor advice if it were eternally to be contested. This annihilated rather than subdued interference, for the whole party was of opinion that nothing less than utter ruin to the project could ensue from her defection. This helpless submission to ignorant dominion, so common in all committees where the leaders have no deeper science than the lead, impeded not the progress of the preparations. Concentrated or arbitrary government may be least just, but it is most effective. Unlimited in her powers, uncontrolled in their exertion, Miss Arbe saved as much time by the rapidity as contention by the despotism of her proceedings. All seemed executed as soon as planned. The rooms were fitted up, the music was selected for the performance. The uniform for the lady artists was fixed upon. All succeeded, all flourished, save only the subscription for the concert. But this, the essential point, neither her authority nor her influence was sufficiently potent to accelerate. Nothing is so quick as the general circulation of money, yet nothing requires more address than turning it into new channels. Curiosity was amply awakened for one evening's entertainment, but the subscription, which amounted to ten guineas, was for three nights in the week. The scheme had no interest adequate to the expense either of time or of money thus demanded, except for matrons who had young ladies, or young ladies who had talents to display. And even these, in the uncertainty of individual success, were more anxious to see the sum raised from others, than alert to advance it themselves. This slackness of generosity, and dearth of spirit, however offensive to the pride, rather animated than damped the courage of Miss Arbe. She saw, she said, that the enterprise was arduous, but its difficulties, and not the design, should be vanquished. Her preparations, therefore, were continued with unabated confidence, and, within a week, all the performers were summoned to a rehearsal. Ellis was called upon with the rest, for in the name of Miss Ellis, and for the sake and the benefit of Miss Ellis, all the orders were given, all the measures were taken, and all the money was to be raised. Yet in no one point had Ellis been consulted, 
and she would hardly have known that a scheme which owed to her its name, character, and even existence, was in agitation, but from the diligence with which Miss Arb ordered the restoration of the harp, and from the leisure which that lady now found, in the midst of her hurries, for resuming her lessons. Ellis, from the time that she had agreed to this scheme, devoted herself completely to musical studies, and the melodious sounds drawn forth from her harp, in playing the exquisite compositions of the great masters, with whose works her taste, industry, and talents had enriched her memory, softened her sorrows, and soothed her solitude. Her vocal powers, also, she cultivated with equal assiduity, and she arrived at the house of Miss Sycamore, where the first rehearsal was to be held, calmly prepared to combat every internal obstacle to exertion, and to strive, with her best ability, to obtain the consideration which she desired, from the satisfaction, rather than solely from the indulgence, of her auditors. But the serenity given, at least assumed, by this resolution, was suddenly shaken through a communication made to her by Mr. Giles Arb, who was watching for her upon the staircase, that fifty pounds had been deposited, for her use, with his cousin, Miss Arb, by Lady Aurora Granville. Intelligence so important, and so touching, filled her with emotion. Why had not Miss Arb transmitted to her a donation so seasonable, and so much in unison with her wishes? Instantly, and without scruple, she resolved to accept it, to adopt some private plan of maintenance, and to relinquish the concert enterprise altogether. This idea was enforced by all her feelings. Her original dislike to the scheme augmented into terror, upon her entrance into the apartment destined for its opening execution, when she perceived that her own harp placed in the most conspicuous part of the upper end of the room, which was arranged for an orchestra, while the numerous forms with which the floor was nearly covered, showed her by how many auditors she was destined to be judged, and by how many spectators to be examined. Struck, and affrighted, her new hope of deliverance was doubly welcomed, and she looked eagerly round for Miss Arb, to realise it without delay. Miss Arb, however, was so encircled, that there seemed little chance of obtaining her attention. The situation of Ellis was awkward and painful, for while the offences by which she had so lately been wounded, made her most want encouragement, the suspicions which she had excited seemed to distance all her acquaintance. No mistress of the house deigned to receive or notice her, and though, as a thing of course, she would herself have approached any other than Miss Sycamore, there was a lively yet hearty insolence in that young lady, which she had not courage to encounter. The company, at large, was divided into groups, to the matron part of which Miss R. was dictatorially haranguing, with a very apparent self-applause. The younger set were engaged in busy whispering trios or quartettos, in corners or at the several windows. Embarrassed, irresolute, Ellis stopped nearly upon her entrance, vainly seeking some kind eye to invite her on. But how advance, where no one addressed, or seemed to know her? Ah, ye proud, ye rich, ye high, thought she, 
Why will you make your power, your wealth, your state, thus repulsive to all who cannot share them? How small a portion of attention, of time, of condescension, would make your honours, your luxuries, your enjoyments, the consolation, not the oppression, of your inferiors, or dependents. While thus, sorrowingly, if not indignantly, looking round, and seeing herself unnoticed, if not avoided, even by those whose favour, whose kindness, whose rising friendship, had most eminently distinguished her, since the commencement of her professional career, she recollected the stories of her disguises, and of her surreptitious name, which were spread abroad. Her justice, then, felt appeased, and she ceased to resent, though she could not to grieve, at the mortification which she experienced. Catching, nevertheless, the eye of Selina, she ventured to curtsy and smile, but neither curtsy nor smile was returned. Selina looked away, and looked confused, but rapidly continuing her prattling, though without seeming to know herself what she was uttering, to Miss Aramede. Ellis, disconcerted, then proceeded, with no other interruption than an, "'Aha! Are you there, the Ellis?' from Miss Crawley, and an, "'Oh-ho! How do do, the Ellis?' from Miss Dye. At the sound, however, of her name, Lady Barbara Frankland, starting from a little group, of which she had been the orator, exclaimed, "'Ellis! Is Miss Ellis come?' and, skipping to the place where Ellis was seated, expressed the most lively pleasure at her sight, mixed with much affectionate regret at their long separation. This was a kindness the most reviving to Ellis, who was now approached, also, by Lady Kendover, and, while respectfully curtsying to a cold salutation from that lady, one of her hands was suddenly seized and warmly pressed by Selina. Excited by the example of Lady Kendover, various ladies, who, from meeting Ellis at the houses of her several scholars, had been struck with her merit, and had conceived a regard for her person, flocked towards her, as if she had now first entered the room. Yet the notice of Lady Kendover was merely a civil vehicle to draw from her attractions the young and partial Lady Barbara. Miss Arb no sooner saw her thus surrounded, than, alertly advancing, and her assuming the character and state of a patroness, she complacently bowed around her, saying, "'How kind you all are to my protégé!' Miss Sycamore ended the scene by calling upon one of the young ladies to open the rehearsal. She called, however, in vain. Every one declared herself too much frightened to take the lead and those whose eager eyes rolled incessantly round the room, in search of admirers, and whose little laughs, animated gestures, and smiling refusals, invited solicitation, were the most eloquent in talking of their timidity, and delaying their exhibition, each being of opinion that the nearer she could place her performance to the conclusion, the nearer she should approach to the post of honour. To finish these difficulties, Miss Arb desired Ellis to sing and play. Ellis, whose hopes were all alive, that she might spare herself this hazardous experiment, demanded a previous conference. But Miss Arb was deaf and blind to whatever interfered with the vivacity of her proceedings. 
and Ellis, not daring, without more certain authority than that of Mr. Giles Arb, to proclaim her intended change of measures, was forced to give way, though with an unwillingness so palpable that she inspired general pity. Mr. Scope himself would have handed her to the orchestra, but that he apprehended such a step might be deemed an action of gallantry, and as such affect the public opinion of his morals. And Mr. Giles Arb would have been enchanted to have shown her his high regard, but that the possibility of so doing occurred to him only when the opportunity was passed. Sir Marmaduke Crawley, however, studiously devoted to the arts, set apart, alike, the rumours which, at one time, raised Ellis to a level with the rest of the company, and, at another, sunk her beneath their domestics, and simply considering her claim to good breeding and attention, as an elegant artist, courteously offered her his hand. Somewhat comforted by this little mark of respect, Ellis accepted it with so much grace, and crossed the apartment with an air so distinguished, that the urbanity of Sir Marmaduke soon raised an almost general envy of his office. Every one now was attentive, singing charms universally. No art, no accomplishment, has such resistless attraction. It catches alike all conditions, all ages, and all dispositions. It subdues even those whose souls are least susceptible either to intellectual or mental harmony. Foremost in the throng of listeners came Lady Barbara Frankland, attended by Selina, unopposed either by Lady Kendover or Mrs. Maple, those ladies not being less desirous that their nieces should reap every advantage from Ellis than that Ellis should reap none in return. But Ellis was seized with a faint panic that disordered her whole frame. Terror took from her fingers their elasticity, and robbed her mind and fancy of those powers, which, when free from alarm, gave grace and meaning to her performance, and what to herself she had played with a taste and an expression that the first masters would have admired, because best have understood, had now neither mark, spirit, nor correctness, while her voice was almost too low to be heard, and quite too feeble and tremulous to give pleasure. The assembly at large was now divided between sneerers and pitiers. The first insinuated that Ellis thought it fine and ladylike to affect being frightened. The second saw, and compassionated, in her failure, the natural effect of distressed modesty, mingled with wounded pride. Nevertheless, her fervent but indiscriminating juvenile admirer, Lady Barbara, echoed by Selina, enthusiastically exclaimed, "'How delightfully she plays and sings! How adorably!' Miss Arb, well aware that fear alone had thus unstrung the lyre of Ellis, secretly exulted that the dilettanti would possess her name and services for their institution without her superiority. The Miss Crawleys were laughing so immoderately at Mr. Giles Arb's requesting them to be quiet, that they did not find out that the rehearsal was begun, and the rest of the ladies had seized the moment of performance, for communicating to one another innumerable little secrets, which never so aptly occurred upon such occasions. Miss Sycamore accepted, 
who, with a cold and cutting sneer, uttered a malicious, Bravissima! Inexpressibly hurt and chagrined, Ellis precipitately quitted the orchestra, and addressing Miss Arb, said, "'Alas, madam, I am unequal to this business. I must relinquish it altogether. And, if I have not been misinformed, Lady Aurora Granville—' Miss Arb, reddening, and looking much displeased, repeated, "'Lady Aurora? Who has been talking to you about Lady Aurora?' Ellis would have declined giving her authority, but Miss Arb, without scruple, named Mr. Giles. "'That tiresome old creature!' she cried, is always doing some mischief. He's my cousin, to be sure, and he's a very good sort of man, and all that, but I don't believe it's possible for an old soul to be more troublesome. As to this little sum of Lord Melbury's— Lord Melbury's, repeated Ellis, much agitated. If it be Lord Melbury's, I have indeed no claim to make, but I had hoped Lady Aurora— well, well, Lady Aurora, if you will. It's Lady Aurora, to be sure, who sends it for you. But still— She has, indeed, then, sent it for me, cried Ellis, rapturously. Sweet, amiable Lady Aurora, oh, when will the hour come? She checked her speech, but could not check the brilliant colour, the brightened countenance, which indicated the gay ideas that internally consoled her recent mortification. And why, madam? she soon more composedly, yet with spirit, added, "'Might I not be indulged with the knowledge of her ladyship's goodness to me? Why is Mr. Giles Arb to be blamed for so natural a communication? Had it happily reached me sooner, it might have spared me the distress and disgrace of this morning.' She then earnestly requested to receive what was so kindly meant for her succour, upon milder terms than such as did violence to her disposition and were utterly unfitting to her melancholy situation. Somewhat embarrassed, and extremely piqued, Miss Arb made no reply but a fretful, Psh! Lady Aurora, continued Ellis, is so eminently good, so feelingly delicate, that if any one would have the charity to name my petition to her ladyship, she would surely consent to let me change the destination of what she so generously assigns to me. Her eyes here glanced anxiously towards Lady Barbara, who, unable to resist their appeal, sprang from Lady Kendover into the little circle that was now curiously forming around Ellis, eagerly saying, "'Miss Ellis, tis to me that Lady Aurora wrote that sweet letter about the fifty pounds, and I'll send for it to show you this moment.' "'Do, little lady, do,' cried Mr. Giles, smiling and nodding. You are the sweetest little soul amongst them all. Laughing and delighted, she was dancing away, but Lady Kendover, gently stopping her, said, You are too young yet, my dear, to be aware of the impropriety of making private letters public. Well, then, at least, Miss Ellis, she cried, I will tell you that one paragraph, for I have read it so often and often that I have got it by heart. It's so very beautiful. You will entreat Miss Arb, my dear Lady Barbara, since she is so good as to take the direction of this concert enterprise, to employ this little loan to the best advantage for Miss Ellis, and the most to her satisfaction. Loan I call it, for Miss Ellis, I know, will pay it, if not in money, at least in a thousand sweetnesses of a thousand times more value. Ellis, touched with unspeakable pleasure, was forced to put her hand before her eyes. 
Don't let her consult Miss Ellis about its acceptance. Miss Ellis will decline every thing that is personal, and every thing that is personal is what I most wish to present to her. I beg Miss Arbe will try to find out what she most requires, and endeavour to supply it unnamed. Oh, could I but discover what would soothe, would console her! How often I think of her! How I love to recollect her enchanting talents, and to dwell upon every hour that I passed in her endearing society! Why did not Lady Kendover know her at that time? She could not then, my dear Lady Barbara, have wished you a sweeter companion. Even Mrs. Howell was nearly as much captivated by her elegance and manners, as I was, and must ever remain, by her interesting qualities and touching sensibility. Oh, be kind to her, Lady Barbara, for my sake be kind to her. I am quite, quite unhappy that I have no power to be so myself. Tears now rolled in resistless streams down the cheeks of Ellis though from such heartfelt delight that her eyes, swimming in liquid lustre, shone but more brightly. Nevertheless, the respect which such a panegyric might have excited in the assembly at large was nearly lost through the rapidity with which it was uttered by the eager Lady Barbara, and nothing short of the fascinated attention and quick consciousness given by deep personal interest could have made it completely intelligible even to ellis but to the sounds we wish to hear the heart beats responsive it seizes them almost unpronounced revived reanimated enchanted ellis now with grace with modesty yet with firmness renewed her request to miss arbe who assuming a lively air though palpably provoked and embarrassed answered that Miss Ellis did not at all understand her own interest, and declared that she had taken the affair in hand herself, merely to regulate it to the best advantage, adding, "'You shall see now the surprise I had prepared for you, if that blabbing old cousin of mine had not told you everything beforehand.' Then, in a tone of perfectly restored self-complacency, she produced a packet, and with a parading look, that said, see what i bestow upon you ostentatiously spread its contents upon a table now she cried miss ellis i hope i shall have the good fortune to please you see what a beautiful gown i have bought you the gown was a sarcenet of a bright rose colour but its hue though the most vivid was pale to the cheeks of ellis as she repeated a gown madam permit me to ask for what purpose for what purpose? To sing at our concert, you know. It's just the thing you want the most in the world. How could you possibly do without it, you know, when you come to appear before us all in public? While Ellis hesitated what to reply, to a measure which, thus conducted and thus announced, seemed to her unequivocally impertinent, the packet itself was surrounded by an eager tribe of females, and five or six voices broke forth at once with remarks or animadversions upon the silk how vastly pretty it is cried miss aramede addressing herself courteously to miss arbe yes pretty enough for what it is meant for answered miss sycamore glancing her eyes superciliously towards ellis pray miss arbe what did you give a yard for it demanded miss bidle and how much will the body lining come to i hope you know of a cheap mantua maker "'Bless me, how fine you are going to make the Ellis!' cried Miss Crawley. "'Why, I shall take her for a rose!' "'Why, then, the Ellis will be the rose!' 
said Miss Dye, 'but I should sooner take her for my wax doll, when she's all so pinky winky.' 'Why, then, the Ellis will be the doll!' cried Miss Crawley. The two sisters now seated, or rather threw themselves upon a sofa, to recover from the excessive laughter with which they were seized at their own pleasantry, and which was exalted nearly to ecstasy by the wide stare and uplifted hands of Mr. Giles Arb. "'It's hardly provoking one can't wear that colour oneself,' said Miss Aramede, "'for it's monstrously pretty.' "'Pretty?' repeated Miss Brinville. "'I hope, Miss Aramede, you don't wish to wear such a frightful vulgar thing because it's pretty.' "'Well, I think it's vastly well,' said Miss Sycamore, yawning. "'So don't abuse it.' As our uniform is fixed to be white, with violet ornaments, it was my thought to beg Miss Arb would order something of this showy sort for Miss Ellis, to distinguish us dilettanti from the artists. It was not Ellis alone who felt the contemptuous haughtiness of this speech. The men all dropped their eyes, and Lady Barbara expressively exclaimed, "'Miss Ellis can't help looking as beautiful and as elegant as an angel. Let her dress how she will.' All obstacles being now removed for continuing the rehearsal, the willing lady artists flocked around Miss Arb, and songs were sung, and lessons upon the pianoforte or harp were played, with the readiness of compliance, taken by the fair performers, for facility of execution, and with a delight in themselves that elevated their spirits to rapture since it was the criterion whence they calculated the pleasure that they imparted to others. The pieces which they had severally selected were so long, and the compliments which the whole company united to pour forth after every performance, were so much longer, that the day was nearly closing, when Ellis was summoned to finish the act. Ellis, who had spent this interval first in curious, next in civil, and lastly enforced attention, rose now, with diminished timidity, to obey the call. It was not that she thought better of the scheme, but that it appeared to her less formidable. Her original determination, therefore, to make her best exertions, returned with more effect, and she executed a little prelude with precision and brilliancy, and then accompanied herself in a slow and plaintive air, and with a delicacy, skill, and expression, at once touching and masterly. This concluded the first act, and the first act was so long, that it was unanimously agreed that some new regulations must be adopted, before the second and third could be rehearsed. Every piece which had followed the opening performance, or rather failure, of Ellis, had been crowned with plaudits. Every hand had clapped every movement, every mouth had burst forth with exclamations of praise. Ellis alone was heard in silence, for Ellis was unprotected, unsustained, unknown. Her situation was mysterious, and seemed open at times to the most alarming suspicions, though the unequivocal regularity and propriety of her conduct snatched her from any positive calumny. Yet neither this, nor the most striking talents, could have brought her forward, even for exhibition, into such an assembly, but for the active influence of Miss Arb, who, shrewd, adroit, and vigilant, never lost an opportunity to serve herself while seeming to serve others. 
The fortune of this young lady was nearly as limited as her ambition and vanity were extensive. She found, therefore, nothing so commodious as to repay the solid advantages which she enjoyed gratuitously from various artists by patronage. And she saw, in the present case, an absolute necessity either to relinquish her useful and elegant mistress as an unknown adventurer, not proper to be presented to people of fashion, or to obviate the singular obstacles to supporting her, by making them become a party themselves in the cause of her protégé, through the personal interest of a subscription for their own amusement. Nevertheless, Ellis, after a performance which, if fairly heard and impartially judged, must have given that warm delight that excites spirit-stirring praise, was heard in silence. Though had a single voice been raised in her favour, nearly every voice would have joined in chorus. But her patroness was otherwise engaged, and Lady Barbara was gone. No one, therefore, deemed it prudent to begin. Neglect is still more contagious than admiration. It is more natural, perhaps, to man, from requiring less trouble, less candour, less discernment, and less generosity. The dilettanti, also, already reciprocally fatigued, were perfectly disposed to be as parsimonious to all without her own line, as they were prodigal to all within it, of those sweet draughts of flattery which they had so liberally interchanged with one another. Miss Arb considered her own musical debts to be cancelled from the moment that she had introduced her protégé into this assembly. She was wholly, therefore, indifferent to what might give her support or mortification, and had taken the time of her performance to demand a general consultation, whether the first harmonic meeting should be held in the apartment of Lady Aramede, which was the most magnificent, or in that of Miss Sycamore which, though superb, was the least considerable amongst the select subscribers. This was a point of high importance, and of animated discussion. The larger apartment would best excite the expectations of the public, and open the business in the highest style. But the smaller would be the most crowded. There would not be room to stir a step. Scarcely a soul could get a seat. Some of the company must stand upon the stairs. Oh, charming! Oh, delightful! was echoed from mouth to mouth, and the motion in favour of Miss Sycamore was adopted by acclamation. Ellis now, perceiving that the party was breaking up, advanced to Miss Arb and earnestly requested to be heard. But Miss Arb, looking as if she did not know, and was too busy to inquire what this meant, protested herself quite bewildered with the variety of matters which she had to arrange and, shaking hands with Miss Sycamore, was hurrying away, when the words, "'Must I address myself, then, madam, to Lady Aurora?' startled her, and she impatiently answered, "'By no means. Lady Aurora has put the money into my hands, and I have disposed of it to the very best advantage.' "'Disposed of it? I hope not. I hope—' I trust that, knowing the generous wishes of Lady Aurora to indulge, as well as to relieve me, you have not disposed of so considerable a sum, without permitting me first to state to you how and in what manner her ladyship's benevolence may most effectually be answered. 
Miss Arb, evidently more disturbed, though more civil, lowered her tone, and taking Ellis apart, gently assured her that the whole had been applied exclusively for her profit, in music, elegant desks, the hire of instruments, and innumerable things, requisite for opening the concert upon a grand scale, as well as for the prettiest gown in the world, which she was sure would become her of all things. Ellis, with undisguised astonishment, asked by what arrangement it could justly be settled, that the expenses of a subscription concert should be drawn from the bounty of one lady, that lady absent, and avowedly sending her subscription merely for the service of an individual of the set. "'That's the very thing,' cried Miss Arb, with vivacity. "'Her ladyship sending it for that one performer has induced me to make this very arrangement. For, to tell you the truth, if Lady Aurora had not been so considerate for you, the whole scheme must have been demolished, and if so, poor Miss Ellis, what would become of you, you know?' Then, with a volubility that showed, at once, her fear of expostulation, and her haste to have done, she sought to explain that, without the necessary preparations, there could be no concert. Without a concert, Miss Ellis could not be known. Without being known, how could she procure any more scholars? And without procuring scholars, how avoid being reduced again to the same pitiable state? as that from which Miss Arb had had the pleasure to extricate her. And, in short, to save further loss of time, she owned that it was too late to make any change, as the whole fifty pounds was entirely spent. It was not now chagrin alone, nor disappointment, nor anxiety, that the speaking features of Ellis exhibited. Indignation had a strong portion of their expression, but Miss Arb awaited not the remonstrance that they announced. More courteous, while more embarrassed, she took Ellis by the hand, and caressingly said, "'Lady Aurora knows, for I have written to her ladyship myself, that every smiling is laid out for your benefit. Only we must have a beginning, you know, so you won't distress poor Lady Aurora by seeming discontented after all that she has done for you. It would be cruel, you know, to distress her.' With all its selfishness, Ellis felt the truth of this observation with respect to Lady Aurora, as forcibly as its injustice with regard to herself. She sighed from helplessness how to seek any redress, and Miss Arb, still fawningly holding her hand, added, "'But you don't think to steal away without giving us another air. Miss Sycamore, Sir Marmaduke, Sir Lyle, pray help me to persuade Miss Ellis to favour us with one more air.' Disgusted and fatigued, Ellis would silently have retired, but the signal being given by Miss Arb, all that remained of the assembly professed themselves to be dying for another piece, and Ellis, pressed to comply with an eagerness that turned solicitation into persecution, was led, once more, by Sir Marmaduke to the orchestra. Here her melancholy and distressed feelings again marred her performance. She scarcely knew what she played, nor how she sung. Her execution lost its brilliancy, and her expression its refined excellence. But Miss Arb, conscious of the cause, and alarmed lest any appeal to Lady Aurora should sully her own character of patroness, hoped by the seductive bribe of flattery to stifle complaint. She was the first, therefore, to applaud, 
and her example animated all around, except the supercilious Miss Sycamore, and the jealous Miss Brinville, whom envy rendered inveterate. How exquisite! How sweet! How incomparable! What taste! What sounds! What expression! Now accompanied almost every bar of the wavering, incorrect performance, though not even an encouraging buzz of approbation, had cheered the exertions of the same performer during the elegant and nearly finished piece by which it had been preceded. The public at large is generally just, because too enormous to be individually canvassed, but private circles are almost universally biased by partial or prejudiced influence. Miss Arbe chose now to conclude that every objection was obviated and Ellis strove vainly to obtain a moment's further attention from the frivolous flutter and fancied perplexities of busy self-consequence. The party broke up, the company dispersed, and the poor, unconsidered, unaided protégé dejectedly left the house, at the same moment that it was quitted triumphantly by her vain, superficial, unprotecting patroness. End of chapter 32. Recording by Roxana Nazari.